0: Dr. McCarty, I have never in my life been introduced anywhere near that i don 't know what to do after that. I noticed he didn 't say what I weigh in, but if you 're wondering it 's one hundred and fifty eight pounds right now so but i 'll tell you this is a foregone conclusion of what 's going to happen because the Word of God is the inerrant, infallible word of the living God, and there is no preacher on the planet who can ever come to the Word of God and wrestle with it and ultimately win. It's just not possible. So, I don't really have the illusion that that's what will happen today. But nonetheless, we come to the first four verses of Hebrews chapter 1. Turn with me there in your Bible. My goal today is to do an exposition and application of these verses. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Hear the Word of the Lord. God After he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by his powerful word. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. What Shakespeare is to playwrights, the Mississippi to rivers and Westminster Abbey to cathedrals. Hebrews 1, 1 through 4 is to all of the New Testament. From high this spiritual Mount Everest, we are able to look out over all that God is doing in His panoramic plan of salvation from creation to the consummation. And at the heart crux and center of it all is His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. God has spoken in one who is His Son. God is a God who speaks. From Genesis to Revelation, you discover that He speaks. In Genesis 1 alone, 10 times, we read the words, God said, And when God speaks, things happen. Worlds leap into existence. God has spoken. Unless God speaks, you would never know him. Oh, I I know the universe declares the glory of God, but the universe cannot tell you of his love. I understand that history tells us about the sovereignty of God, but history alone cannot tell you what Christ was doing on the cross. Oh, I know your conscience bears witness to the morality of God, but your conscience unaided cannot teach you how to live and love rightly. Unless God speaks, you would never know him. The universe, history, and your conscience all remain one giant undecipherable hieroglyph until you discover God's Rosetta Stone, Jesus. Jesus Is the speech of eternity translated into the language of time? Jesus is God spelling himself out in language that we can understand. God is a God who speaks, and we can know God because he speaks. Speech is a vehicle of revelation, it is also a vehicle of communication. If we want to know one another, what do we do? Well, we talk. We get to know one another through personal conversation. Speech is a vehicle of communication. Communication can be garbled at one of two places. It can be garbled at the source or it can be garbled at the reception. One of my favorite stories of Franklin Roosevelt when he was president of the United States is he used to complain about having to sit in those interminably long receiving lines and people would come through. And he noted that people were so awed by being in the presence of the president of the United States, they seldom paid much attention to what he said. So he decided to conduct an experiment. On this occasion, as people were coming through, the President, president Roosevelt would lean over and mumble The words, I murdered my grandmother this morning. And so people were coming through the line and President Roosevelt leaned over and muttered, I murdered my grandmother this morning. I murdered my grandmother this morning. And to his surprise, people would respond, wonderful, Mr. President. Oh, God bless you, Mr. President. We're praying for you, Mr. President. It's so wonderful to see you, Mr. President. And finally, the ambassador to Bolivia was apparently the first person to understand what the president was saying. And so the president leaned over and mumbled, I murdered my grandmother this morning. And the ambassador to Bolivia leaned over and whispered in his ear I'm sure she had it coming (laughs) speech can be garbled at the source or it can be garbled at the receiving end when God speaks he does not mutter nor does he stutter When God speaks, He speaks with crystal clarity. God has spoken. And you know, Jesus is God's final speech and revelation. All that Jesus is, said, and and did, this is God's revelation, God's speech to us, His communication to us. God is the perfect communicator, and Jesus is God's perfect communication. And the reason that's true is because Jesus is the only one who perfectly represents the Father. Speech is a vehicle of communication. Speech is a vehicle of salvation. Because you see, it is through this one whom God has spoken, this word of the living God, this one who is a son, this one named Jesus, it is through him all that he has done, especially what he did on the cross when he paid the price for our sins. He is the one who is the key to salvation. And so, Jesus Christ is the way we come to know God. Think about it. God loves you. God desires your salvation. He desires the salvation of everybody on the planet. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God desires people to know His forgiveness of their sins. Woody Allen is a name many of you will know, some of you may not. He's a comedian, movie actor, later, movie producer. He's also a self-proclaimed atheist. Woody Allen was in an interview several years back and he was asked this question. Mr. Allen, I, I know that you're an atheist, you don't believe in God, but I want to ask you this question. If there is a God and if that God should speak to you, what would you most want to hear him say? Woody Allen thought for a moment and then he said, well, if there is a God and if that God were to speak to me, I would most want to hear him say Three words, you are forgiven. Every sane human being on this planet, if there is a God, and if that God should speak to them, would most want to hear him say three words, you are forgiven. Because God has spoken his final word in one who is a son, there is an answer to your question. There is a solution to your problem. There is forgiveness for your sins. There is salvation for your soul. God has spoken in one who is his son. Now walk with me through these verses and let's see what the author is saying to us. Do you notice first rattle out of the box He decides to do a comparison and contrast between God's speech... In the olden days, through prophets in the Old Testament, and now in these last days, his final word through one who is his son. So I read these words, and I discover that there is continuity here. I notice that the subject of God's speech through prophets and through the son is the same God. It's the same subject, God. God is the one who after a long time spoke through the fathers by the prophets, and yet in many portions, in, in many portions and in many ways, but now in these latter days, he's spoken unto us. And one who is by his character and nature a son. And so there's continuity. Look at the symmetry between these this section. Notice that God is the one who speaks. Notice that he spoke long ago, but now he speaks in these latter days. Notice that he spoke to our fathers, but now he speaks to us. Notice that he spoke through prophets, but now he speaks in one who is a son. There is a continuity here, but there is also a contrast. And the contrast is drawn between a prophet kind of a revelation of God and a son kind of revelation of a revelation so you see it's God who chose to use those prophets in the Old Testament and they spoke the word of God but it was piecemeal it was progressive it was never fully all that God wanted to say that's true of the prophets but of the son his revelation is personal and permanent and so there is a contrast there is a distinction by the way I love the prophets don't you I love reading the prophets. In my quiet time every morning, I'm reading through the minor prophets. All those prophets speak with many accents, don't they? There's the lofty eloquence of Isaiah. There's the plaintive wail of Jeremiah. There is the charged invective of an Amos, as he calls the women of his congregation, fat cows of Bashan. There's the schizophrenia of Jonah, there's the enacted sermons visually of Ezekiel, there's the stalwart strength of a Daniel. All of the prophets speak in different accents, but they all spoke the word of God. And so God speaks through the prophets. And by the way, the author of Hebrews quotes the Old Testament directly 31 times. And so, what you have here when the author is saying God has spoken in days of old through the prophets, he is actually expanding that to include all of the Old Testament because from all three sections of the Old Testament... The Torah, the Kethavim and the Naviim, the prophets, the writings, and the Torah, the author quotes illustrating that all of the Bible, all of the Old Testament for him is the Word of God and is communicating God's speech. God spoke in old times, in the olden days, through prophets, but in these last days, and that phrase, in these last days, has become a technical term in the New Testament. When did the last days begin? The last days began with the incarnation of Christ, His life, His death on the cross, His resurrection, His ascension, and His exaltation in heaven. That was the inauguration of the last days. You and I have been living in the last days. People have been living in the last days for 2,000 years. In these last days... God has spoken to us in one who is a son. It's not a prophet kind of a revelation, as wonderful as that is. No, it's a personal revelation in God's son himself. The prophets lived and they died. Jesus lived and died and he lived again. The prophets talked about forgiveness. Jesus Forgave The prophets preach repentance. Jesus forgave those who repented of their sins. They were men. He is the God man. They spoke the word of God. He is the word of God. And that's the difference. It's not a prophet kind of a revelation as grand as that is. God has gone you one step further. And he has revealed himself personally in one who is a son. Now notice that in Greek there's no article before the word son. And notice the word son. He could have said he's revealed himself in Jesus. He could have said he's revealed himself in Christ. He's revealed himself in the Lord Jesus Christ. All of that's true, but no, the author uses the word son, father and son. And here he has revealed himself. God has revealed himself and given us his final word in one who is by his character and nature a son. The anarthrous use, the lack of an article here in my judgment, though there is no necessary grammatical reason for an article to be there. We know who the son is. There's one and only son like Jesus. But nevertheless, I think that the point is a contrast between a prophet kind of a revelation and a revelation that comes in one who is by his character and nature. A son. One who is so related to the Father in such intimate relationship, in personal connection, that he is a son. God has revealed himself. His final revelation, his final word is spoken in one who is by his character and nature a son. That's God's final word. When I was a kid, I would occasionally, like you, do verbal battle with my parents. And whenever my mother, would draw a verbal line in the sand, she would draw that verbal line of four words, that's my final word. And I learned that to step across mom's verbal line was to invite pain (laughs) into one's young life. And so I learned that when mom said that's my final word, she meant it. And when God says Jesus is his final word, he means it. Sorry, Mary Baker, Patterson, Glover, Eddie. Nope, there's not another revelation and prophet. I'm sorry, Mohammed, there's not another one. I'm sorry, all of you other prophets out there. I'm sorry, Joseph Pye Smith. I'm sorry that, there, that God has now revealed himself no longer in prophets, all of you false prophets today, but in one who is by his character and nature a son. God has revealed himself through Christ Jesus and only through Christ Jesus. But I notice a wonderful thing that the author says. He says, now, not only has God spoken unto us in one who is by his character and nature a son, but now the author says, let me tell you about this son. And so he talks to us about what I call the seven wonders of Jesus. Everything in this passage drives to this point and then everything in the middle of two all the way through four is built off of this single main proposition, God has spoken in his son. And then there are seven statements that are made about the son. They are encoded in participial and relative clauses, seven of them. And I call these the seven wonders of Jesus. Hey, do you remember in ancient history you study the seven wonders of the ancient world? You remember that? You know, you got the pyramid of Giza, the hanging gardens of Babylon, the temple of Zeus at Olympia, you 've got the Temple of Artemis in ephesus you 've got the mausoleum at Halicarnassus, you have the Colossus of Rhodes and the Lighthouse of Alexandria. The seven wonders of the ancient world, but put them all together and they 're nothing but belly button lint compared to the seven wonders of Jesus and so I want you to look at the seven wonders of Jesus. number one, the first wonder of jesus we 're told is he. Is the one whom God appointed heir of all things you see it is not unusual is it not for a father to bequeath an inheritance to his son and so the father has appointed The Son, Jesus, to be the heir of all things. He's going to inherit all there is. The phrase all things right there means everything in the material universe and everything in the spiritual universe. It is all coming into the lap of Jesus. Because He is the Son in direct relationship with God, and because of His cross work, what He does in salvation, Jesus has been appointed by God to be the receiver, the one who receives the inheritance of all things. And by the way, have you ever read Romans 8? If you haven't, you ought to, because there you will discover that you, those of us who know Christ, we are joint heirs with Christ so you see a joint heir is one who receives everything the heir receives so it's all coming into the lap of Jesus in the end of time in the eschaton it's all coming to Jesus and it's all coming to you because you are in Christ Jesus so last last night before the clouds came in I looked up at my sky and I said isn't my sky beautiful tonight and my stars aren't they lovely tonight And this morning, I said, isn't my rain, I breathe in that fresh air, the rain, it cleansed the air. Isn't my air clean today? You say, are you nuts? No, I'm a joint heir, and so are you. It's all coming into the lap of Jesus because of who he is and what he's done. And so, the author says, hey, the first wonder of Jesus, he's the, he's the heir of all things. God has appointed him to that position. But then look at the second wonder of Jesus. Not only is Jesus the heir of all things, but notice number two, he's the creator of all things. Look at what he says. Through whom, that is through Jesus, God is the one who made the world. The word world there means universe. The space matter time continuum. What you know is the universe. Everything there is in the physical universe, God is the one through the agency of the Son who created it. So not only was the Son, not only is the Son the consummator, not only is he the one who, is the, who inherits it all, he's the one who made it all. He's the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He's the creator and the consummator. When God stepped out from behind the curtain of nowhere onto the platform of nothingness and spoke a universe into existence, Jesus was his agent of creation. Before there was anything else, there was God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Jesus is God's agent of creation. And by the way, that's the death knell, of course, here and many other places in Scripture to biological evolution, naturalistic evolution, as well as theistic evolution. Naturalistic evolution dies because there's a God who creates. And theistic evolution dies because it's impossible to extrude theistic evolution interpretively out of Genesis 1 and 2. So, they're both wrong. Once I was a tadpole beginning to begin. Then I was a frog with my tail tucked in. Then I was a monkey in a banyan tree. And now I am a professor with a PhD. (laughs) You think that's how it works? Not on your life. No, there is a God who created everything, including you. And therefore, you are his by creation. And he wants you to be his by salvation. And so, Jesus is the one who's the creator of all things. He's the one who creates. He's the one who consummates. It's all wrapped up in him. And then look at the third wonder of Jesus. I read right here in verse 3. And he is the radiance of God's glory. Now, the previous two statements go together. They're tightly linked in the Greek text. The next two statements go tightly together. The previous two statements utilized an aorist, utilized the past tense to express in narratival fashion what God does in creation, what Christ does in creation and in consummation. But suddenly now there is a shift to the present tense. And this beautiful present tense, eternal participle, like a glistening diamond, it stands against the black crepe of narrative telling us that Jesus is, eternally is. It's an eternal is. Look at it. He is the radiance of God's glory. All that God is, Jesus is. Like the sun radiates light, so Jesus radiates the glory of God. What is the glory of God? Glory is God's invisible. Attribute all that he is that you cannot see or know of him that comprises his glory because he is God. And then also it's what he allows you to see visibly, the manifestation visibly of his attributes. It's both combined together. That is the glory. And Jesus is the one who perfectly expresses the glory of God. Have you read John 1, 14? The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory as the only Son of the Father. How about John 1.18? And Jesus Christ is the one who declares the Father. The word declared there in the Greek New Testament is the Greek word from which we get our English word exegesis. God speaks through Jesus. Jesus exegetes God. He tells you who God is. He explains who God is. He demonstrates who God is. He is the expression of God's glory. Look at it. He is the outshining, the radiance, the effulgence of the glory of God. Everything God is, Jesus is. That's what the author is saying. Jesus is made of the same stuff as God is. You don't make the sun light, it is light. You don't make the sky blue, it is blue. You don't make water wet, it is wet. And you don't give Jesus glory, He is glory. Interestingly enough, in Acts 7, when Peter was being stoned and he stood, he was there dying and he looked up and he saw in the text in Luke says in Acts 7, he saw Jesus and the glory, he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing. Now, Forgive this little Greek grammar lesson here, but if that little chi there, for those of you who've had your Greek, if that is an exegetical chi, then what Stephen is saying or what Luke is saying about Stephen is that he saw the glory of God, namely Jesus. He equates the glory of God with Christ. Jesus perfectly expresses the glory of God. You want to know God? You better look at Jesus. You're never going to know him anywhere else. And furthermore, Jesus, when he reveals God, he reveals nothing more than himself and he reveals nothing less than God. This is who Christ is. This is what he does. He is the one who is the radiance of God's glory. And notice number four, the fourth wonder of Jesus. And Jesus is the exact representation of God's nature. The phrase that translated by those two words, the word in Greek translated by those two words, exact representation means a stamp with an image on the stamp such that when you stamp the image onto some metal or paper or whatever, the exact image on the stamp is imprinted on the object you stamp. In other words, Jesus perfectly expresses God's image. Everything God is, Jesus is now watch this an image and the thing imaged are two different things walk with me to the Ripley's believe it or not wax museum over in Arlington Have you been there and walk through and look at all the famous people they have there let me just pick three they have there you'll see there's Brad Pitt guy he looks just like he you think that's Brad Pitt if you were to step across that red rope and walk over there, you would think, that's Brad, Brad That's Brad Pitt. He's going to talk to me. Brad, I really liked you in Ocean's Eleven when you were Rusty Ryan, one of my favorite characters you played. But does he talk back? No, he doesn't. And then over there, how there's Clint Eastwood, the man with no name. There are two kinds of people in the world, two groups of people. There are people who love Clint Eastwood Westerns, and there are people who are uncultured two groups of people in the entire world and you look at old Clint and you think you're going to see him say a man's got to know his limitations you think you're going to hear him say that you think you're going to going to hear him say there are two kinds of people in this world my friend those with loaded guns and those who dig you dig you think you're going to hear him say that from one of his famous spaghetti westerns but no you stand there you touch him He doesn't speak, he doesn't move, he's not real. And also over there in the Wax Museum, there's Edward and Bella from Twilight. Looks just like him. You think it's just, you think it's it's the two of them. Now, look, I'll have to admit when that deal was going on, you know, I was a Teen Jacob guy personally. (laughs) Ladies, let me give you a little advice if your only choice is between a vampire and a wolfman, choose the wolfman every time, okay? That's what you ought to do. So, it just killed me. I mean, I just cried when she chose the vampire and not the wolfman. It was about all I could take. But, I mean, they, I mean they, they're, there they are. And they look so real. You can reach out and touch them. But you know what? They're made of wax. The imaged and the one imaged are not the same. They're not made. Those figures, those mannequins are made of wax. They look like the real people, but they don't talk. They don't touch. They don't feel because they don't have flesh. They're not real. But notice what is said about the son. He is the exact representation of. Of God's nature the word nature there means God's substance Jesus is the same is made of the same stuff yes. God is yes. Everything God is, Jesus is, with the exception that Jesus has taken on human flesh in the incarnation. But otherwise, Jesus and God are one. Jesus gives the glory of God. That's an expression of individual of unity in nature. Now, the fact that the Son is the exact representation of God, that's the author's way of talking about the distinction of persons within the Godhead. You see, there's one divine nature, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, but there are three persons, three person's one nature that's orthodox trinitarian doctrine and when the council of Nicaea was meeting in 325 this passage of scripture became the key text in the New Testament to destroy the Arians and to explain that Jesus was not in like substance as God he was the same stuff same substance as God God a very God And so the author of Hebrews says hey the fourth wonder of Jesus is he's exact representation of God's nature. And then the fifth wonder of Jesus in verse 3, and he upholds all things by his powerful word. Jesus is the sustainer of the universe. Everything there is, he sustains it. Everything, everywhere, from the tiniest particle to the largest macrocosm of the universe, Jesus sustains it all. Get out your microscope, get it out and get your slide and put on there and get you a drop of Texas pond water. And drop one drop, put one drop of Texas pond water on that slide. Do you know that there are 53,000 species of protozoan? 53,000. In a single drop of Texas pond water, there are somewhere between two and 3,000 in that drop so let's focus in can you do that focus in got your microscope oh look there's amoeba i'd recognize him anywhere he looks just like his picture in the science book oh there's paramecium i see him shaped sort of like the sole of my foot and i see that little big nuclei small nuclei there i, I could recognize me but anywhere oh look there's rotifer he's only about a thousand cells you can see through him notice little rotifer there's got a little appendage toward his the back part of him there that's what they call a foot And it's got sticky substance on it. So when a little microscopic piece of plant floats by, rotifer can hook over there and stick to that plant and get a free ride anywhere in that pond water. Isn't that amazing? Oh, look over there. There's euglena. Euglena is unlike any of the protozoan. Euglena is the one who is able, because it has chlorophyll in it, it's the only one of the 53,000 species that does, has chlorophyll in it, and it has a little organelle, a little eye spot, see that little dark spot? And he can orient toward the sunlight, and when he does, he can create his own food via photosynthesis. It's unbelievable. And all of these little tiny microscopic, little microscopic protozoan floating around in here. Who holds all that together? Who sustains that? By His powerful Word, Jesus does. Get out your telescope Focus it on the night sky. And take a look at our Milky Way. Take a look at our solar system and our Milky Way. You know our Milky Way, our galaxy only has 200 billion stars in it. And it's sort of a puny galaxy compared to all the millions of galaxies in the universe. And you know our solar system is really a puny solar system. If you could proportionately reduce our solar system down to the size of a football field, the sun would be on the 50-yard line earth would be 93 million miles away on the 46 yard line and you could put 250 million earths inside the sun pluto would be on the goal line just a little puny little puny part of our milky way oh by the way you know what our earth is rotating at the speed of a thousand miles per hour do you feel dizzy this morning i mean you're moving I mean, it's rotating at the speed of 1,000 miles an hour. And not only that, but because we're hooked in gravity to the sun, we are rotating around the sun. Guess how fast? 66,000 miles per hour. Do you feel even more dizzy this morning? But hey, it gets even better because the sun and our galaxy, our solar system and our galaxies hurtling through space because of gravity and our connection to the sun. We're flying, hurtling through the universe at a speed of 483,000 miles per hour. And even that's not the galactic speed limit because light travels at the speed of 186,000 miles per second. Who holds all of that together? Who sustains that? There is a cosmic cop whose badge is deity and whose whistle is omnipotence. And he directs galactic traffic throughout this universe and his name is Jesus. That's who sustains it all. He holds it all together. Now, time out. You can get a few of those in a football game. You ought to get one in a sermon. Time out. Don't you think if Jesus can hold a universe together, that He can hold your life together? Huh? I mean, if He can sustain a universe, do you think He can sustain your marriage? Do you think He can take care of you through your studies at Southwestern Seminary? Just a thought. Just a thought. And so the fifth wonder of Jesus is by nothing more than his powerful word, he sustains a universe. But I come to the sixth wonder of Jesus. And when I do, my breath is taken away. Because I read in verse 3, he made purification for sins. Sins. Wait a minute, this is all that the Son is in His pre-incarnate state, now all of a sudden we're talking about Him in His incarnate state and the purpose of His coming. And what is the purpose of His coming? To deal with sins. Sins? Who brought sin into God's universe? Who in the world would do that? Was it you, little microscopic protozoans? Did you do it? And I hear them as they squeak back in their little squeaky microscopic voices, don't look at us. (laughs) How about you, planets out there? Are you the ones that brought sin into God's universe? And in their booming cosmic voices, I hear them as they respond, don't look at us. Who would dare to bring sin into God's universe? perfect creation. Well, will take a look around and take a look at the one preaching and those on the platform because we are the culprits. You see, sin is so bad, it took Jesus, it cost Jesus his life to pay for it. There are 7 plus billion people on planet earth. That means 7 plus billion people's sins. And 24-7, they're empties in one before the throne of a holy God, in one rushing, roaring, filthy, malodorous flood. The sins of 7 billion people empty themselves before the throne of a holy God every moment of every day. And yet God, having the power to wipe it all out, wipe everybody out, judge them permanently in mercy and in love for his errant and wayward and sinful creation, sends his son to die on the cross for every single one. Of those sins. Notice he says. Cleansing. Purification for sins. He has made. You see in the Old Testament. This is Old Testament language. In the Old Testament. Sin is filth. It's dirt. It's dirty. And the person who sins. Sin itself has to be atoned for. Sin itself has to be dealt with. And then the soul that sins. Has to be cleansed. Purified. And that's what God does. He provides an atonement. Sin is cleansed. The legal debt of sin is paid. And when that atonement is applied to every Christian's life, sin is purified. And we become purified in his sight. This is what God does. This is the sixth wonder of Jesus. And interestingly enough, these first five wonders of Jesus are seldom touched on anywhere else in the letter. But number six becomes the focal point and the theme of the doctrinal sections of Hebrews from here on out. It's all about how God through His Son Jesus has made purification for sins. And we see linguistically the focus and emphasis the author makes because in the previous five statements... You have subject, verb, object, SVO, subject, verb, object. He appointed him heir of all things. He is the creator of all things. He is the brightness of his glory. He is exact representation of his nature. He sustains all things. And then the author shifts and he takes the object and he puts it first for emphasis, cleansing for sin. And then comes the middle participle. He himself and he alone has made for you. This is the focal point Of Scripture. It's what the Son Jesus does to deal with the sin problem. And so the seventh wonder, the sixth wonder of Jesus, he made purification for sins. And then finally, the author says there's one more wonder. The seventh wonder of Jesus, right here at the end of verse three, having done all of that, when he made purification of sins, he sat down. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That phrase majesty on high is a Hebraic circumlocution. That means he sat down on the throne of God. He sat down where God sits. Why? Because he is God. He's God in human flesh. And he accomplished the work of atonement. He rose from the dead, ascended to heaven, and has been seated permanently at the right hand of God. And one day the trumpet will sound and he will return again. And make it all right. Here's the fulfillment, the text of Scripture of which Hebrews is the sermon. Hebrews is a sermon. It's a written sermon. And its text is Psalm 110.1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That psalm is quoted and alluded to several times in Hebrews. It is the text of the sermon known as Hebrews. And so now we are told that he sat down, having completed this, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And so Jesus is God's great prophet. He's God's great high priest. He's God's great king. He's God's great prophet. God has spoken his final word in one who is by his character and nature a son. He's God's great priest. He made purification for sins, and he's God's great king. He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus is God's final word and everything you will ever need. 1969, West End Elementary School, Rome, Georgia. The sixth grade class on the last day of class in the month of May was about to have their class party. And it was tradition that the 6th grade class, in those days you didn't have middle school, you had elementary school through the 6th grade, then the 7th grade was a rite of passage going into junior high school. And so completing the 6th grade was a big deal. And so we had a tradition in the 6th grade at West End Elementary School, they'd had it for many years, the class would vote to elect a Mr. and Miss West End Elementary School. And so it came as no surprise to anybody that Terry Littlejohn was elected Miss West End Elementary School. She was drop dead gorgeous. She was Marsha Brady with brown hair and brown eyes. She was smart as a whip. And so it was no surprise that she was elected Miss West End Elementary School. But it was a shock when the votes were counted and Mr. West End Elementary School turned out to be David Allen. And the reason that was a shock is because David Allen wasn't the smartest guy in class. No, that honor went to Paul Webb who later as a senior in high school would score a perfect 1600 on the SAT. In fact, we had two in my graduating class of 132 people that scored a perfect 1600 on the SAT. It wasn't Paul Webb. It wasn't, he should have been, but he was the smartest kid. I wasn't. It wasn't Brad Morrow. He was our football stud. He was our quarterback. Tall, good looking. But he wasn't elected either. To the surprise of the class, David Allen was elected. And so when other grades, first through fifth grade, got to have their class party in their room, not the sixth grade class, we got to load on a bus and go across town and go to Rock Ridge Roller Rink in order to have our party at a skating rink where you could have all the Coke and all the cookies you could eat all the Coke you could drink and skate and all that. And then there came a time when the lights on the skating rink were lowered and everybody exited the skating rink and the multicolored crystal ball with all the lights shining on it and flashing down, the colored dots on the skating rink floor began to turn. And it was announced that there's another tradition, one which I had no knowledge of. And that is that everybody else would leave the floor and Mr. and Miss West End Elementary School would hold hands and skate around the skating rink in a couple skate. Now, that was a tradition that I had no knowledge of, but it was one that I had no objection to. <laughs> and so, I stepped up there with Terry Littlejohn, and I was able to take her hand. And the music began to play, and off onto the floor, we went. And I want you to know, in 1969, we had no computers. We had no video games we didn't have any cell phones we didn't have iPhones iPods iPads we didn't have Segas Nintendos Xboxes Wii's or Wii's 2 but we had Tommy James and the (laughs) Shondells well I don't hardly know her but I think I could love her crimson and clover over and over (laughs) and holding her hand I got to skate around that ring to that song and so we started out and she said well this is awkward everybody's looking at us and suddenly came through my mouth the coolest words I have ever spoken to a girl in my entire life I said no they're not looking at us they're looking at you Hey, look, you're having a hard time getting that girl. Come talk to me. I'll fix it up for you, okay? I'll explain to you how it works, all right? And so I got to skate around that rink, holding her hand, talking to her, and she talked with me. Oh, it was great. You know, I knew about Terry Littlejohn. I mean, she was in my class, but she was way out of my league, so I would seldom talk to her. I couldn't even get up to her echelon of, you know, social status. And I, I knew about her, and I knew facts about her. I knew where she lived, and I knew some things about her. But I want to tell you, it was a whole lot more fun, not just knowing stuff about her, but holding her hand and talking to her and skating around that rink with her. That was a whole lot more fun. You know, it's a wonderful thing to know about God. To know facts about God, you know, who he is, he exists. He's omnipotent, he's omniscient, he's omnipresent. To know the facts about God that we learn in the Bible, it's a wonderful thing to know about God. But I want to tell you, it's a whole lot more wonderful to know that God personally through his son, Jesus Christ. It's a whole lot more fun. And one day sitting in a pew in a church service, Jesus came into my pew and he reached out his hand and he said, David, I want you to come and skate through life with me. And I took Jesus by the hand and gave my heart to the Lord. And from that day until this day, Jesus and I have been skating through life together, having more fun than ought to be legal because the greatest thing on the planet is knowing Christ and serving him and living for him and loving him and walking with him and giving your life service to him because you see God has spoken his final word and one who is by his character and nature a son whom he appointed heir of all things and He created all things and he's the brightness of his glory and his exact representation of his nature and he sustains all things by his powerful word and although he did all of those things contrary to my expectation, he made cleansing for my sin and when he did, he seated himself at the right hand of the throne of God and so today, take Jesus' hand and skate through life with him.